0: morning. One thing God reminded me of this morning is a small crowd doesn't mean that God wants to do small things. And I anticipate God working in our hearts today. I'm really excited about the message that I believe the Lord has given me and that I get to speak to you today. And I, I hope this message is hopeful and helpful. Uh, I hope it messes with some of you in a hopefully a good kind of way. Uh, And before I go any further, can we just pray together? Can we bow our heads? And you may want to just open your hands where you are. But God, this morning we come. We are hungry for you. We are desperate. God, we can go through motions this morning. We can go through motions in life. But if you are not the one breathing and speaking life into us, it's meaningless. You are the meaning of life. You're the source of life. You're the giver of life. And wherever we are in our lives today, whether we are at a place where we're experiencing some high highs or some low lows, you are the one who meets us where we are and calls us out of our darkness and misery and into your wonderful light. So God, I I just stand in front of this church today, a church I dearly love, asking for your Holy Spirit to pour through me a gift of preaching so that Jesus Christ can be formed in our hearts. And I pray this in the power of the name of Jesus. And the church said... Amen. Look, you don't got to love sports to sometimes be moved by stories that come from sports. There are sometimes commercials that make my wife cry. I mean, I, like, there are commercials that make me cry, too, like Baconator from Wendy's and stuff like that just can bring a tear to my eye, all right? Uh, but then there are these other stories that are sometimes told, little documentaries. And there are stories like, and you don't even have to love sports. I love these stories. Like, in 1992, when there was the, in the Olympics, I believe his name was Derek, who pulled his hamstring And he stood up and wanted to finish because he had been working for years to be able to uh, race in the Olympics. And then his dad came running out there and helped him across the finish line. Like, you don't have to love racing. You don't have to even run to be moved by a story like that. Or back in 2008 when there was the girl, the college female softball player who hit a home run. And as she rounded first, she tore her ACL and uh, the, base, the rules of baseball, rules of softball are that um, you can hit it over the fence, but if you don't round the bases, it doesn't count. And if one of your teammates touches you, you are out. So the other team had a couple of girls on their team who came over and picked her up and carried her to second base, where they gently let her foot touch the base, carried her to third, carried her home. And there's sometimes these images of people who get hurt, other people who help carry them, and they carry them past the finish line. This makes these amazing stories. We can go further when we go together. And I love how the church exists To carry hurting, wounded people to a better place. And I know it takes sacrifice and it takes hard work. So here's what I want to do today, all right? It's Dr. King weekend. We're leading up to the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. I'm in a series called Wired for Connection. It's going to be a six-week series. We're talking about how vital it is to be connected to God and through this connection to God, there's a connection to other people, to the church, and this is something that should also permeate and change how we're connected to people all throughout our cities and wherever we live and where we work. So today what I want to do is I want to show you a few places where Jesus cleanses the temple. And Jesus cleanses the temple in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and most Sundays when I stand in front of you, I want to take one passage and I want to unpack it, but I'm going to do something different today is I'm going to be walking through Matthew, Mark, and Luke and all three of their stories of how Jesus cleanses the temple because there are little details from each one of them that are helpful. And the challenge with this is, is like you would never read a biography, three different biographies about one person at the same time. At least I don't think you would. So you wouldn't like want to read about Dr. King and then find three different biographies where you're reading all three of them to see what they have to say. You'd probably read one. And that's why a lot of times when I'm preaching and like Jesus cleanses a temple, I want to show you how Luke tells it because Luke's writing to a specific audience. So there's a challenge sometimes in trying to combine all these stories, but I'm going to do it today for the sake of trying just to help you see everything that happened. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, here's where we're going to begin. All right, so Jesus just wrote in. It's a triumphal entry. So if you want to open your Bibles and maybe put your finger in Luke 19 and also uh, put a marker in Mark 11 and Matthew 21, we're going to be jumping between those three chapters. In Luke 19:41, Jesus rides in the triumphal entry. He gets off of the donkey, and it says that he looked over Jerusalem and he wept. He wept over the city, cried over the city. Now, there are a couple of places in the Gospels where Jesus weeps. He weeps in John 11 over a dead body of Lazarus. He weeps here in Luke 19. Hebrews chapter 5 tells you you that Jesus often would just moan and cry and would cry out to God. So uh, the weeping for Jesus was mourning and it was grief, but it was also preparation for action. And I love thinking about mourning in that kind of way. That people need to mourn. They need time to mourn. They need a pace to mourn. at Whatever pace God has you on, there's a place for mourning and grief. But mourning and grief prepares us for action, for adventure, for life, for belief in the resurrection. All right. So, so here Jesus is weeping and whenever you see Jesus weeping, it's usually preparation for something that's happening. Now this, uh, this was a a chapter, a verse in the Bible nine years ago when we first moved to Memphis that really meant a lot to me because Jesus weeps over a city and then days later he lays down his life so that those people could find life and experience life. So Jesus weeps over brokenness, acknowledges brokenness, is able to grieve over brokenness, and then do something to see that brokenness redeemed. What does it mean for us to follow Jesus in a way that we are willing to acknowledge the brokenness around us, to weep over whatever brokenness is there, and then actually like do something about it? Um, There are so many things we could weep over right now. I, I, I mourn in my spirit. I've cried out to God for some of you who I know over the last few weeks, you have lost loved ones. Uh, You are dealing with chronic pain and with illnesses and there have been surgeries. I I, I weave and I mourn in my spirit and I cry out to God. I I know there are people in this church over the last few weeks and, and last few months who have lost jobs. And for some of you, it's been really hard to try to find jobs. And then depression begins to set in and questions about yourself begin to set in. There are things when I think about Memphis context and Shelby County or America, there are things that break my heart and... Makes me cry out to God, and what do we do about it? Like, how do we step into forms of brokenness and speak in forms of brokenness? I know in our current context, um, right here in Memphis, I know there was the story that broke nine days ago out of the the High Point Church where one of their ministers, a friend of mine, a friend of some of ours, Andy Savage, 20 years ago, uh, um, abused and assaulted a young woman. And she's not just a victim. Her name is Jules. You've probably seen this story. This isn't just a city story. This has gone global. This has been like the London newspaper. This is everywhere. And I've walked with enough women who have experienced forms of abuse and assault to know that there are that there are women who have held stories inside of them for years because they haven't felt like there's a safe place to tell their story. So I know there are women who sometimes it's taken decades before they, they share some of the hurt that has been lodged inside of them for years. Which, hear me as a church leader speaking to this church, that if there are women or people who have experienced any form of abuse, help us to become a church that can be a safe place for all people. And I want healing and redemption and restoration for jewels. Andy's also, he's been a friend of mine. We've developed a friendship over the last couple of years. I've been on his radio show. He's been on my podcast. He was here, a part of a forum. And there's really no doubt that the passion in Andy for marriage and family and purity and singleness, that, that the law of this is part of how God has redeemed and has restored his story. But I know Andy has been on the record this week that, also acknowledging that there are sins and evil actions in our lives that God can forgive, but there are major consequences. And I've said it before, there's no such thing as a sin in your life that doesn't have an impact on people all around you. And we grieve over stories like this. I grieve because of what this story does to just the global church around the world and how people who are in the church think about the church and how people outside of the church think about the church. And I just, there's so many things that make me cry out to God today. For redemption and restoration. The first thing Jesus does when he comes in. Is he weeps over the city. In preparation for laying his life down for the city. So that people could find and experience life. And here's what Jesus does. Now look in Mark chapter 11. Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he went into the temple courts and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now Matthew and Luke don't tell you this. That Jesus actually t- like stepped into the temple and he looked around. And in the Greek, he looked around at everything. It's ponta, That's the Greek word. He's looking. This is more than just like glancing through the window into the temple. It's like Jesus steps in and he's uh, inspecting everything. Everything that is going on. And it says he he left because it was late. It was late, which means there weren't a bunch of people there. That would have been the perfect time for Jesus to cleanse the temple and throw things around. and, And rearrange some stuff because it wasn't right. Because it wouldn't have been so much of a commotion. And people wouldn't have seen it because it was late and there weren't many people there. But Jesus steps in, looks around at everything, but he doesn't do anything about it. And then Jesus leaves Jerusalem because you do not see Jer- Jesus sleep at all in Jerusalem until he has died and he's been laid in the tomb. He steps into Jerusalem and he goes out somewhere else where he sleeps. Then, all right, so at this point, Jesus weeps over the city. He looks around at the temple. He looks at everything, observing what is there. And then in Mark chapter 11, it tells you, here's the story. On Jesus, the next day, his way, um, he's leaving Bethany. He was hungry. In verse 13 of Mark 11, seeing in the distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So he rebukes this tree like Jesus zaps this tree. Uh, in the Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern fig trees, they bore two different kind of fruits. And the first kind of fruit, these little nodules, would show up in early spring. So here's Jesus around the Passover. And, and travelers love eating these things. And if you ever came up to a tree, sometimes there could be leaves that could look healthy, but you get closer and the nodules weren't there. And if they weren't there, it lets you know something about the tree. That it's not performing its proper duty. Uh, That trees were supposed to have fruit. And even these fig trees in springtime should be showing and revealing that there's some fruit coming. And if there's no fruit, it lets you know there's a problem. And Jesus notices that this tree is not performing its proper function. It's It's not doing its job. Which is a perfect metaphor in that time for the people of God. Who were supposed to be bearing a certain kind of fruit and having a craving for righteousness. But they weren't. So Jesus rebukes the fig tree. Now this is not... A big problem for, for a lot of us because I don't think we, we live for what fig trees like to produce. All right, so don't think that from this story, like Jesus is anti-environment or Jesus goes around just zapping anything, all right? Now, if this was a banana tree or an apple tree or some strawberry little, little place, bush, I, this would be a big deal, right? Like if Jesus is zapping and destroying things, we love but I mean, he's just, he's just going after some fig newtons right here, all right? No, no big deal, okay? All right, so he, he, he's going into Jerusalem. Where he's going to the temple where he knows there are people who are going to get temple right and they're going to get Passover right, but they're not getting righteousness right. There are people who know how to travel to Jerusalem and get the right sacrifice. They know how to go through all the Passover motions, but they're not craving the righteousness of God. Right? Some of us, we know how to do this. We can do the church game. We can do the prayer game every day before a meal. We can go about, but but we are not craving the righteousness of God. Jesus is looking for fruit. So now that you have Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, he goes in, he looks at the temple, he rebukes the fig tree, now you get to the point where Jesus is going to start turning over tables where he gets angry, and you see it in Matthew 21, 12, Mark eleven fifteen, 15, Luke 19, 45, all of these revealed. Jesus goes into the temple courts, and he starts throwing them some things around. He gets angry, and you see his anger. Uh, my brother, um, my younger brother, was the one in our family who was always like, well, I shouldn't say that he was the only one pushing buttons, all right? We all knew how to push my parents' buttons, especially my brother and I, but he was argumentative, all right? He still is. He's good at it. I remember when he was young, still taking naps. There were times my mom was like, go to the room and take a nap. And there was one time my brother came out of the room, and he went to my mom, and he said, Mom, I've been been thinking while I was supposed to be taking a nap, and I've been thinking that I want to obey God in everything I do. And my mom was like, Jonathan, I'm so proud of you. That's what we want from you. And Jonathan said, and the Bible says nothing about taking naps. Now, and my mom's like, you know, but the Bible does say you obey your mom and dad. So get in there, and take a nap. But my brother's also the one that like points out chapters like this, where hey, it's okay for me to get angry and throw some things around in the room because Jesus got angry too. All right, but the question that we need to ask isn't why uh, does Jesus get angry? Because he gets angry a few times. It's why did he get angry? What did he get angry for? So it says Jesus goes into the temple courts. He's in the outer courts. And he starts turning over tables and, and benches. And, and there's, he's upset because his outer court had become this marketplace. It had become like Wall Street. The historian Josephus. When, who was never a Christian, but told stories that there were some years where 255,000 lambs were brought to Jerusalem for the Passover. That's how many people were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. In that time, the temple was, uh, 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 the Sycamore View facility in our parking lot, all this is, it's a, we sit on about 11 acres. The temple was about three times this space. So Jesus goes into the outer courts, which would have been a large area. And in the outer courts, anybody could come there. Jews, non Jews, everybody could go to the outer courts. And that was the place where anybody from any nation could come and pray to God and meet with God. So there are the outer courts. And then a few steps past that, you went uh, up some stairs and you went into the court where the women could go. So women, Jewish women could go a little further than non-Jews. And then beyond that, the men, the Jewish men could go. And beyond that, there could be the Jewish priests. So there were a lot of walls, five-foot walls, barriers throughout the entire temple. And... and into all these entrances there were signs and different languages of who could go past which places and and the romans even gave the jewish leaders Permission that if there were gentiles who crossed certain barriers that there could be the death penalty for them Like there were these strong boundaries all over the place And in the outer temple, which was the place this outer court where where non-jews should be able to come and pray and meet with god it had become a marketplace Think, of, think about Wall Street and then add like pigeons, doves, and lambs to that. It was, it was a mess. And Jesus goes nuts, right? He's upset about what this place had become. Starts turning over stuff. Jesus goes specifically to two groups of people. He turns over tables of money changers because there was abuse of money. Think about it. This was easy to do. People had to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Once you got to Jerusalem, you had to have sacrifices to offer up for the forgiveness of sins. You had to purchase stuff. So they could charge whatever they wanted because what are you going to do about it? The law requires for you to do some of these things. So the money changer, but Jesus goes over, did you notice in a couple of these stories, a couple of the passages you read above me on this screen, he goes over after money changers and also for those who were selling doves. Not for those who are selling lambs, but those who are selling doves. In Leviticus chapter 5 or 7, it says one of the commands and sacrifices is if you did not have money to purchase a lamb, then what you needed to do is purchase doves or pigeons or birds to sacrifice. This was the sacrifice, this was the offering for the poor. So I think Jesus is acknowledging in this moment that there are those who... Are coming and and were there people who had money to purchase lands and they're trying to do birds? Maybe. I'm sure that happened at some point. But he goes after two specific groups of people money changers because there's exploitation, and he goes after those who were selling doves because there was abuse of the poor. Jesus doesn't just start turning things over. He had a word to speak. And in Matthew or Isaiah chapter 56, what he quotes from Isaiah 56. And what Jesus says is, My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all peoples. And for any Jewish leader or any Jew, they knew the book of Isaiah. In fact, in the New Testament, Isaiah is quoted. I believe it's quoted more than any other Old Testament book other than maybe the Psalms. So for any of them, they knew that he's quoting a verse, but I think they also knew what the greater context of that was. And Isaiah chapter 56, beginning in verse 3, here's what it says, all right? This is the Bible. Isaiah 56, 3, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him. So Isaiah is acknowledging that there are non-Jews ministering before the Lord To love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered right here. Jesus is quoting a verse from a chapter in which God is letting people know the day is on its way when the progression of God is that all people will be invited into the same community. I'm not making Jesus out to be a social justice warrior in this moment, in that time. That he didn't go into Jerusalem just to set the outer court right. He went into Jerusalem to lay down his life as a sacrifice for their forgiveness of sins and freedom from sins so people could be drawn and ushered into a brand new movement. But part of that is Jesus going into the outer courts and acknowledging that there are things being done that do not please the heart of God and they do not line up with what the future of God is going to be. And he turns tables and throws things around and quotes a chapter about all people and non-Jews being drawn into the story. Know this, all right? To create fresh space for an outpouring of God, Jesus had to cleanse space. Jesus often has to cleanse space and throw things around and rearrange in order to usher in a fresh movement of God. If our hearts are now a temple of the living God, there are times where Jesus needs to come into us and throw some things around in preparation for a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God. Now, revival throughout the history, not just of Christianity, but revival throughout the history of God's people does not begin with people having the desire for revival. It begins with repentance. The revival of God isn't because people want revival. Revivals begin with people acknowledging that, hey, there are things in me and there are things in people who've gone before me. There's generational sin that's passed down from one generation to another and we need to repent of these things and say we are sorry as we look for a fresh movement and outpouring of God. The vision of Isaiah 56 and what Jesus declares is still a vision from God that there is still cleansing that needs to be done and preparation for the fresh thing God wants to do. And as God is bringing all people, because Jesus is for everyone, as God's bringing all people into a community, it is not the role or task of the church to play the role of the gatekeeper who then begins to discern who's in and who's out. It's God's role to play. And here's what happens: Jesus cleanses the temple, In Mark eleven seventeen, and in Luke nineteen forty seven, it lets you know this. As he taught them, and in verse forty seven of Luke nineteen, every day he was teaching at the temple, and this teaching is providing instruction. So it's not just Jesus who quotes Isaiah, Isaiah fifty six. Apparently, Jesus begins doing some teaching while he's throwing around things and also after that to let people know what this movement of God is. All right, so with that foundation laid, let me speak into something just for a moment. Uh, We're approaching the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, and you're going to hear a lot about this in the months to come. We're going to hear about it on the news. There are going to be stories. There are going to be documentaries, public schools, private schools, and I'm assuming most homeschools. Are going to take time where you acknowledge and you celebrate Dr. King's life, his legacy, civil rights movement. You're going to study it, talk about it. Uh, Even if you're not in school, you're going to hear about this in the newspaper, in the media, on the news, billboards. There are going to be events, rallies, marches, worship gatherings. So as we approach April and 50, the 50th anniversary, um, how are we going to behave? What What is God one of the people? Because I want to believe that the church has a great opportunity in 2018 to help move the needle and what it means to be a part of the movement of God, the progression of God, the inclusion of God. The church has a great opportunity to speak words of truth and to tell stories that matter. It's hard to believe it's been 50 years, so I'm going to take a risk, all right? I know I'm going to get nailed for this, all right? I just want to see a show of hands. How many of you were alive when Dr. King was assassinated 50 years ago? All right, now that I just aged some of you, all right? How many of you remember where you were when the news broke, when you first heard the news of Dr. King's assassination? How many of you remember and you could recall the emotions that were experienced, either by you or the people you were around? Like, you know the emotions that were felt. Uh, When I'm in conversations with people, Mark Taylor, we've had these conversations. When I'm talking to people about racial reconciliation or Dr. King's legacy or the assassination, a lot of times what I ask white and black folks who were alive 50-plus years ago, is what were the emotions that were felt by the community, and the responses are all over the place. For some, it was fear. It was um, a punch in the gut. It was a feeling of that we have lost. I've talked to some of my wife friends whose response was that it energized their community to do something better. I've also talked to some of my wife friends who tell stories about going to school the next day and when the news was announced. Over the speaker that there was a standing ovation and applause. That we finally got him. The the responses are all over the place. Churches respond. It's so differently. Like how did people were wrestling. Like how do we talk about it? How do we move forward? Alright, so so I want to help prepare us. Uh, to be faithful people who can help move the needle over the next three months and to be prepared, not just shut down stories, to be a part of what God is doing and how God would want us to talk. But before I do that, I've got to acknowledge some of the challenges to this. And one of them is that um, it's so easy for us to allow filters to blur our vision of how we are to approach certain things in life that there are filters that we allow to come on, and let me go at it like this, okay? Uh, if there are times when I make certain points that I wish I could, like, hold the hand of you before I say things, and I know some of you would be like, do let go of my hand right now, all right? But just to hold the hand to, so that we could actually talk about it but, it, but here's the deal, man. If you subscribe and consume large amounts of only one news outlet in your life, you have a biased worldview. I don't care what news outlet it is, all right? But if you consume and subscribe and only go to one place to learn about the world and to inform you about the world, you have a biased worldview. And if you're sitting out there saying, no, I don't, then you you have a biased worldview. Um, When I meet with people who struggle with great fear of what the world has become or they worry about the world that is and their anxiety is based on that fear and worry, usually I have questions that lead them to the point where they confess to consuming large amounts of media daily. And usually what I do when I ask, how much, do you, how, much, how much time do you spend, like watching Fox News or CNN or MSN, how much time do you spend? I multiply whatever their answer is. If they say an hour, it probably means two hours. If they say two, it means four. If they say three, it means 14, all right? That's just how... That's just how the math goes. And one of, my, one of my concerns for Christianity, especially in the United States of America, is that we give God Sunday morning, but our primary news outlet gets the rest of the week. And this becomes the filter that we think about issues and life and relationships through. And when we do this, what happens is it jacks up our attention and our allegiances and just to let it be known, I am for journalism and I am for media and I celebrate them, appreciate them. I, w- I wish I would have gotten a minor in journalism. My concern is that we have many Christians who claim to be Christians first and Republicans second or Christians first and Democrats second, that the actions of their lives, their, their presence on social media does not reflect that confession. And if the way you think about the kingdom is filtered through your primary news source. It is idolatry that needs to be repented of. It's not just sin. It's, it's idolatry. It's mixed allegiances. It's allegiances that are in a, in a way that directed to a place that they shouldn't be directed. All right, so, so let me throw out an example, all right? Go with me. If you hear the word foreigner immigration, what is the filter you use to even think about it? Uh, Because in this room, there are a lot of different filters when you even throw that up. Now, Lifeway Christian, it's the bookstore, is a conservative bookstore. I appreciate Lifeway because they have sold my books in Lifeway, all right? But here's the deal with Lifeway. It's part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Lifeway is a conservative group. If you subscribe or write about what would be considered more progressive or liberal matters. So you take a, a stance on marriage equality that isn't orthodox to, to Christianity throughout the years or you question certain things in the Bible or maybe you, you write about maybe creation's a myth and these things. LifeWay doesn't sell your stuff. So I'm just making the point. LifeWay's a conservative group. LifeWay does research with people too. And what LifeWay learned as they did research with born-again Christians is that only 12% of them confessed to thinking about immigration by using the Bible. Which meant 88% of born-again Christians, their views on immigration came from sources outside of the Bible. Now let it be known, I stand in front of you as someone who believes in immigration reform and safe borders, and I'm all for that America needs to do some things to make America safe. I, I believe in that. Yet, I also know that I come to this issue as an American, but first and foremost, I have to come as a kingdom person, which means I have to acknowledge and reconcile that there are 100 plus verses in the Bible that talk about how God's people care for the alien, the stranger, the foreigner. So if we can come to a table where we can talk about how we care for them, I think we can have good conversations. So the filters are up. So whenever we hear certain words like, Like foreigner, immigration, racism, Dr. King. We have filters that sometimes taint how we begin to think about those things. Let me throw one one other question, all right? If I were to poll the room today, if Jesus were to come back today, what would be the first place in the United States of America where Jesus would go and cleanse? What would your response be? Because some of you would answer that question like this. I know without a shadow of a doubt, the place where Jesus would go to cleanse is, and you would fill in the blank because you were so certain that's the place where he would go. Maybe it's Washington, D.C. Maybe it's abortion clinics, right? Maybe it's Vegas. Maybe it's a Memphis Grizzlies uh, executive office, you know. We just got to <laughs> cleanse it and make it new. Um, but our answers are, I mean, we, we have these filters, and we've got to acknowledge that filters exist. And in a season like this, where we're going to hear multiple times over the next few months about the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, what is the filter we're going to think through? And I want to help lead us to be a church, and I want to be a person, and I know I don't have this figured out. I struggle with this. I want a gospel filter, I want a kingdom filter, where I'm sold out for Jesus first. So here's the deal in this church and in all churches, we need stories from people 50 and above who can tell us stories from their experiences and their wisdom and their knowledge and their life experiences, that they can tell us stories that things are better right now than they used to be. And I need white members of this church and black members of this church who are 50 and above who are not afraid to tell some of those stories. Things are better than they once were. Some of you remember walking streets where there were segregated restaurants, water fountains, bathrooms. There's so many stories you have of what it was like to live in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And we need your stories that can share things are better than they used to be. Now, we also need in the church, in this church and in other churches, we need stories from people. And we need stories that tell us that things are not as they should be. We need people who can tell us stories that, hey, we've made some progress, but there's still there's more to do, and here's why there's more to do that we haven't arrived. And you can't have one without the other. We don't need people who are only telling stories that things need to get better, but not hearing stories of how we are better. And we don't just need to hear stories of how we are better without also acknowledging that there are things we need to do to get better. Does this make sense? I hope to create some conversations over the next few months that can do this. And here's why this is a struggle. Here's why it's hard to even have conversations inside and outside the church about racism, or rec- racial reconciliation. How should we even think about civil rights movement? It's a challenge because do we talk about it or do we not talk about it? So, um, <clears throat> Lecrae is, uh, there's a guy named Lecrae. He's a hip-hop artist. and Hip-hop may not be your thing. Lecrae has a great story of growing up in Texas, going from Texas to Memphis. There's so many good stories that begin like that, right? Growing up in Texas, came from Texas to Memphis. Uh, Lecrae lived in Binghampton when he was here in Memphis about a decade ago. And he is now um, a well-known artist. He has music that some people will call a black music, but you go to any of his concerts that... It's a genre of music. Lecrae puts out music that draws people from all different walks of life. Old, young, white, black. Lecrae is rooted theologically. So he's part of a lot of the people who launched downline ministries. Lecrae was in school with them. He's gone through discipleship programs. So he tries not to water down his lyrics and his music. Lecrae's also been very outspoken the last few years about racial matters. Two and a half years ago, he had a tweet, and the tweet went viral. He had so much backlash from the, this tweet that he ended up going into a depression, was on pain meds, and, and uh, became addicted to medication to numb some of the pain from this. And here was the tweet. I want to show you what this tweet was. He had a tweet on July 4, two and a half years ago, that said this. It was a picture of African Americans in cotton fields. And the tweet was, this is what my family was doing on July 4, 1776. Is he right? Is he true? Is that statement true? Okay, and as you look at the image, what are the emotions you feel just as you look at it? Because it conjures up a lot of different emotions, right? Because if we're sitting with Lecrae and our response is, man, just tell me more, then we may end up hearing some stories that we need to hear. But then sometimes we look at stories like this and we're like, man, that's 250 years ago. Can't we get a little beyond that? And here's why this is challenging. I was sitting with a friend this past week. And this woman taught, she she teaches me a few things quite a bit. And here's one thing she told me, Josh, a lot of times when it comes to race and civil rights, we want to tell people, we want to forget the stories that happened. But we don't do that about a lot of other events. Like you don't, how often do you hear people say, let's just not talk about the Holocaust or D-Day or other tragic events. But when it comes to civil rights, and the oppression of African-Americans throughout the history of our country, a lot of times we're like, man, we, we just don't want to tell the stories. And, and, and here's why. Because to tell those stories, for a lot of us, brings up memories that are hurtful and haunting. Because we know that many of our parents, grandparents, or great-grandparents were a part of churches who perpetuated the problem. And it's hard to acknowledge it. And it's hard for us to hear stories or tell stories that are haunting. But I also realize that in this church when we come here every single Sunday and we take communion with each other, that in this church there are African Americans, some of our black friends who do not have to go beyond their parents before they can think of someone who was not just oppressed but who was killed by the KKK. Some people in this church don't have to go beyond their parents So it's these stories, though, it's 50 years ago, like there's still stories that are fresh and wounds that still bleed, they're still open. And I want us to believe that we have something to offer in the next three months that matters. Jesus cleared space so that all nations could come into the same space to meet with God together. And I don't want you to think about this as the white people were the Jews and then we allow non-whites to come into the outer core so we can meet with God All of us were outside having been brought in by the goodness and the grace of Jesus. And by what Jesus accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection, and as Revelations declares, the goal of God is not for us to become colorblind, but to acknowledge our differences, to celebrate our differences, and to live for something better. Um, What do we have to lose if we take the posture of listening to stories from other people. Like, what do we have to lose if we choose in the next few months to take a step towards someone who is wrapped in a different skin color of ours to befriend them and to learn from them? What do we have to lose to take a posture just to listen to stories that may be haunting and hurtful? And what we have to gain is the kingdom of God It's a better community and future for our children. And I think it's where Jesus is leading us. I want you to see, when Jesus cleansed the temple, here's what happened. He cleansed the temple, threw things around, did some teaching. And my heart broke and I almost wept because I had never seen this next verse. In Matthew 21, right after Jesus cleanses it, here's what you read in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. And you get the sense that for years people came to the temple and walked right past the blind and the lame. They had no entrance into the story of God. And Jesus cleanses stuff to create a new movement and the first people who come to him are the broken and the hurting and he heals them. And what does it mean for the church to be a part of a fresh movement of God, an outpouring of God? And when we do that and express that, there are the lame and the blind and the hurting around us who flock to us knowing that this is a place where they can experience healing.